So uh, we're going to start off um, our third last sermon in Colossians um, with a story. When I was 10 years old, I went on a family holiday to a place called the Wilderness uh, along the South African coast, very, very beautiful place. Uh, we, le- we stayed in a resort uh, where there was this uh, gigantic lagoon, beautiful lagoon that flowed into the sea. Um, but on my very first day of the holiday, my lovely sister, Lovitabits, uh, she double bounced me on the trampoline and I tore all of the ligaments in my right ankle. Uh, But being an energetic 10-year-old, I was not going to let this uh, ruin my holiday. I just simply decided I would spend the rest of the holiday uh, in the water, learning different water sports, doing different things, as long as I could stay off my my ankle. And so one day, my dad and my sister decided they were going to learn how to windsurf, and uh, I was going to try paddle skiing. Now, for those of you who don't know what a paddle ski is, I don't even know if they make them anymore, Uh, The best way to explain a paddle ski, it's like a stand-up paddle, um, but you don't stand on it, you sit on it. Um, So it's got a little uh, little, uh, indent for your buttocks and and two little indents for your ankles, and then there are these straps that go over your ankles to keep your feet firmly in. And and so my dad hired the windsurfer for uh, himself and, and my sister, and the paddle ski for me, and off they went, and off I went on the paddle ski. Uh, but first, he gave me these very strict instructions. He said, under no circumstances are you to put your feet under the straps, uh, because my ankle was about the size of a balloon, and he said, if I got stuck underneath there, and if I capsized, I might be in a lot of trouble. So as a, an obedient child, I, I agreed I, I wouldn't do that, and so off they went in their direction, and I, off, we, I went off in my direction. And a paddle ski, to be honest, is, is something very easy to learn, uh, especially with your feet outside, you had a lot more balance. But soon I got frustrated, I was like, oh, this is too slow. If I could just get my feet under the straps, I could go way faster and explore this lagoon. Uh, so they were way down the other end of the lagoon, and I thought, I'm just going to give it a go. And it took me about several painful minutes to get my swollen ankle under the one strap and the other foot under the other strap. And off I went, paddling faster, having a great time, got overconfident, and capsized. And uh, like my dad said, uh, you know, my ankle might get stuck and I might be in a bit of trouble. Well, it was immovable. And uh, if you can picture this, um, I was capsized, ankle was stuck uh, with the paddle ski over me, and I was facing the bottom of the lagoon. And every time I tried to twist to come up and grab some air, the paddle ski would go over my head and push me back down. And so I thought, well, this is it. Ten years old, and I'm going to go be with Jesus. You know, I have no idea where my dad is. I mean, they were like trying to learn how to turn the paddle ski. I, I mean, the, the windsurfer, I don't know where they are. I don't know if, even if he had to see me, if he could get to me in time. And I just thought, this is it. I am off to be with Jesus. Next minute, I felt this hand on my chest pulling me up and, and the other hand pushing the, the paddle ski away. And, and suddenly I thought, I hope this is Jesus because if it's my dad, he is going to be really mad with me, and rightfully so. Turns out it was my dad, and uh, he was rightfully mad with me, but also a bit relieved that I'd be around a little bit longer. 
Um, but all that to say is that we are going to be talking about the Christian family this morning, specifically about children being obedient to their parents and parents being a source of encouragement to their children. Now, I know this uh, relates directly to parents, but here's what we need to remember, that this is God's word, and as we read it together and as we unpack it together, there will always be something relevant to us. We are a, a community, and we are all here for each other. In fact, we are all here to support each other in the different phases of life that we find ourselves in. And so, young marrieds, Listen carefully um, to what is expected of you one day, should you have children. Singles, see how you can support those who, who do have children, how you can encourage them in their responsibilities, how we can be sensitive to those who don't have children who, or who are struggling to have children, or how we can come alongside the single parent, how we can support them. And Children's Church volunteers and our youth leaders uh, to see how we can encourage children to be obedient to parents and, and to fall deeper in love with Jesus. So my, my big request of you is please don't check out. We are a faith family in this together. So here's what I'm proposing this morning. Jesus is enough to transform our families. Last week we saw he's enough to transform our marriages. This week, he's enough to transform our, our families through Christ-empowered obedience. So the good news is that Jesus will never tell us to do something. He'll never command us to do something that he doesn't equip us to do. And so, again, according to the context of chapter 3, as we put off the old sinful self and we put on the new self created in the image and likeness of Jesus, we will be enabled to obey these instructions and transform our families. So I want you to read the text with me. It's Colossians chapter 3, verses 20 to 21. Um, you can grab a Bible in front of you or check it out on your phone or have a look at the screen. But I want you to read God's word for yourself. It says this, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. So here we go. To have a transformed family requires two things. Number one, obedient children, and number two, encouraging parents. So to have a transformed or a transforming family, point number one, we are to have or, or requires obedient children. Now, I know that sounds pretty like the, like the, the Brady Bunch or like you know, this, this fairy tale that makes our families look like maybe the Simpsons or the Adams family in contrast. But remember, again, the, the whole of chapter three is describing this doctrine of sanctification. And sanctification is the process of growing in Christ-likeness, growing in Christian maturity. It is not a pretty doctrine. It is full of bumps and bruises along the way, but it is a progressive process nonetheless. And it's the same for our children in learning obedience. It's not going to happen overnight. But the Lord wants us to know that His design for children within the Christian family is for their obedience. Again, have a look at verse 20. Paul says, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. So firstly, the, the obvious observation is this command is to children. 
So therefore, uh, Paul aims this at children who are at an age or an intellectual cognitive level where they can understand or grasp the concept of obedience and attempt to live it out. It also implies that they're still living at home. So while children are still under their parents' roofs, they are to be obedient, Paul says. And I know there are many, many circumstances that might challenge this, but the general idea is that children who are of an age where they are still dependent on their parents uh, for their physical needs, their care, their love, need to be obedient. And so once children then obviously reach an age where they are far more independent and they can move out, their level of obedience changes to one more of respect towards parents. The next intriguing thing Paul outlines is that children are to obey their parents in everything, he says. Now again, I wish I had the Apostle Paul standing right here so that we can ask him to, we could ask him to elaborate on what he means by that because everything is everything, right? It's such an all-inclusive word. It doesn't mean some things or sometimes because so many different scenarios come to my mind like, well, what if the parents aren't Christians? Or what if one parent is a Christian and the other one isn't? Are they still expected to obey? But now remember what we learned from last week is that as Christians, we're all to submit under the lordship of Jesus more so than anyone or anything else. So therefore, the parameters by which children are to obey their parents, whether Christian or not, is if it brings glory to the the Lord or not, or if it's within his will or not. That's the parameters. Everything, the word everything is defined or determined by God's will. Secondly, we can state it in another way, children are not to obey their parents to sin. A parent cannot ask their child, or the the child is not, doesn't have to obey the parent if they're asking him or her to sin or to be sinned upon. Now, I, I spend way too much time reading horrible articles on um, the amount of abuse of children in this world. And so I'll spare you the details. I'll just give you two stats. One stat said this, about one in 10 children will be abused before they turn 18. And I think that is simply isolated to the states. I think it's far worse in other countries. The second one says this, uh, 60% of all those victims will never tell anyone because it's most likely that they are being abused by a parent or some sort of relative who's telling them not to tell anyone, and so therefore they are being obedient to them. The other way, like I said, is um, when parents ask children to sin. Uh, I recently read of a mother who distracted a shopkeeper while her two sons, nine and 10 years old, uh, then pretty much stole valuable objects from the shop and then made a run for it out of the shop. And then the mother herself then grabbed a six-pack of Red Bulls and tried to make a getaway, but in order to get away from the pursuing shopkeeper, she then began pelting him with the cans of Red Bull. I mean, it just was absolutely chaotic. And then, of course, there were far, far worse stories from around the world, and I'm also guessing here on Cayman. So yes, children, obey your parents, but within the parameters of God's will. 
And if not, there are legal means uh, available or a trusted friend that you can speak to. But on the flip side, children are not to disobey their Christian parents who are attempting to help them to live out the Christian life. But now you, you just have to imagine this entire church way back in the first century in Colossus were, were squashed into Philemon's house and they were all listening to Paul's letter being read out. And there was no you know, elementary class or pre pre-K class or, or youth class, they were all squashed in this house together, uh, listening to Paul's letter being read, and then the children would have heard, children, obey your parents in everything, and they go, why, right? I mean, it seems to be that all children go through the why phase, and then they transition into teenagers, and they go, whatever, Right? So Paul knows this well, and he then provides the motivation. He provides the reason behind this instruction. And so maybe that's a good lesson for us as parents, as, as teachers or, or grandparents, to, to provide the reason behind the command so that we don't always come across as, as dictators, but that we do have their greater good in mind. So that's why Paul says this, for this pleases the Lord. Not because this will please your parents, although it will, or this will uh, please your, your teachers, although it will. He says, but it pleases the Lord. Now again, remember, the, the context of chapter three is that if the child or, or the children have been raised with Christ, if they are genuinely born again, then this motivation, this reason will resonate within them. It won't be perfect in terms of their application. They won't be perfect in their, in their obedience. But deep down, because they have been regenerated, their hearts have been regenerated, there will be a deep sense of, yes, I want to please the Lord. Because within every single born-again Christian is a desire to live out God's will. In fact, that's what we ask, right? When, you, when you're born again, you, you ask, well, what's God's will for my life? There's a desire to put off the old sinful, selfish self and put on the new self who desires to live for the glory of the Lord. So we, before we move on to the last point, one of the greatest ways that we can help parent our children is not by necessarily giving them instructions to obey, which is obviously important, that's what Paul is saying here, but that almost comes naturally to us as parents. The part that doesn't always come very naturally to us, but should be one of the most important things we do, and that is point them to Jesus. Point them to Jesus so that they might believe in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, to grow in reverence and awe of him, and to love his word, to love his will, so that Jesus becomes their motivation, so Jesus becomes their conscience, so they do everything in a way that ultimately pleases him, therefore obeying their parents simply becomes the byproduct of their relationship with Jesus. Because listen, we, Janine and I know that there are times when, when our girls obey us, but they're not really obeying us from the joy of their hearts. You know, when we ask them to clean up their rooms and, and they moan, and then we say it a little bit sterner, uh, and, and then they begin to clean their rooms, we know that they are obeying simply because they are afraid of the possible consequences. But inside, those hearts are, are angry. 
But we're trusting that as we point them to Jesus, as we read his word to them, as we pray for them and as we pray with them, that their hearts will grow deeper and deeper in love with Jesus, that their lives begin to align with his will, and they then begin to obey out of joy for the Lord and not out of fear of consequence. So with that in mind, let's shift more to the parent's responsibility in experiencing a new or transforming family in Christ. So number two requires encouraging parents. Paul states the command like this. He says, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Let me just say this. If, if you are a parent and you don't have a lot of money and you feel the pressure of providing the best for your children, the best in terms of education, the best in terms of uh, entertainment, clothes, life experiences, or maybe you're a parent here and you, and you are blessed with, with many resources, but you're also feeling the pressure to continue to provide the best for your children. What Paul infers here is something that we can do no matter which side or end of the financial spectrum that we're on. And that is to be encouragers of our children. One of the most loving things that we can do for our children is to inspire or to impart courage within our children. I still remember it like yesterday, the first time my dad said that he was, was proud of me. In fact, while I was prepping this sermon, I got all emotional thinking of that moment. And I mean, my dad has, has blessed me with many, many different things. He's helped Janine and I survive month by month way back uh, uh, in South Africa. But if you had to ask me, what is the most encouraging thing your dad has ever done for me? It wouldn't be things that he's given me or done for me. It would be time with him, time with him, the conversations that we've had, the, the counsel that he's given me. But this wasn't the case in Paul's day, and unfortunately, I don't think too much has changed today. That, what is interesting is that word uh, fathers in the Greek can also be translated as parents, which it is in, in the book of Hebrews. But yet all scholars agree that fathers is the correct word to use here because within the Christian family, the father is the head of the home. But now Paul saying this would have been completely countercultural to his day and age, way back in the first century. I mean, remember from last week, if wives were simply property back then, children had it far worse. Firstly, there was a high mortality rate. In fact, some parents wouldn't even name Wouldn't, hello, sorry, out of zone area. Some parents wouldn't even name their children until they could see that they were going to, to live, they were going to survive. And then uh, they were only valued in the sense of how they were going to contribute towards the family business, which back then was largely uh, agricultural, a, a farming society. And so because of this mindset or this attitude, fathers in particular would provoke their children. Uh, David Guzik explains it like this. He says, they would provoke their children by being too harsh, too demanding, too controlling, unforgiving, or just plain angry. This harshness can be expressed through words, through actions, or through nonverbal communication. And I'm thinking, well, if we look at that list, well, we can see it's, it's not just simply isolated to the first century culture. Again, I read another article or sermon by Stephen Cole. 
on how we can provoke our children. Because I wanted to be specific. I wanted to, like, I wanted to know what does that mean so that we know what not to do. And uh, he came up with quite a list. We'll just run through it together. The first way we provoke our children is through unpredictability. Uh, where he says, a kid never knows if his dad or mom will blow up over a minor infraction or will let a major offense go by. And so the poor child or children never knows where, or, where he or she stands. You know, are they going to blow up about this or not? And so they, they grow up in an insecure environment. Number two, unreasonableness. A parent won't listen to the child's explanation or consider the circumstances before passing judgment. It's like, we just, I don't have time to listen to you, here's the punishment. Or unfairness, a parent gives a harsh punishment for a minor matter, you just, it's all about the discipline. Or favoritism, one child gets away with murder and another is treated sternly. Or selfishness, a parent uses the child to meet the parent's need without regard for the child's need. In fact, it's kind of like you find your security in your child rather than you providing a secure environment for your, for your child. He then goes on and he, he talks about extremes of over and under discipline. He says, uh, criticism without praise. The parents rarely praise a child's positive behavior and often criticize his faults. Um, I read another article, uh, the, the guy who wrote the article remembered um, uh, a story when he was at school, he came home with a report card of all A's except for one B. And he says that's all his parents saw, was the one B that he had. Insensitivity. A parent won't listen or minimizes what to the child is an important problem. So, you know, we've been around a lot longer, we, we have a bit uh, of a bigger perspective on life than our children, and so we're just tempted to go, oh, you know, really, in the great scheme of life, that's not important. But in their little worlds, it's huge. And so we as parents, we need to remember that. We need to come down into their worlds. Unavailability. A parent is absent or too busy when the child needs him or her. This is huge, and I, and I know that we have so much pressure on us at work and you know, other relationship issues, but the challenge is, hey, when we do go home, are we home? Or is our mind still at work? Or is our, have our minds gone to what's, what do we need to do tomorrow? Or are we busy on our phones? Next one, breaking promises which teaches a child not to trust what his parents say. So you probably, oh, no, I'll, I'll be there. Oh, no, I'll do this for you. And then when it comes to that moment, we're just like, oh, you know what? I'm just too busy. Communicates untrust. Hypocrisy. A child sees a parent putting on a front of righteousness before others, but living differently at home. This is probably one of my biggest prayers that my girls see the dad that they have at home is their dad that they have at a church service or with other people. Lastly, legalism. A parent lays down the law on petty issues and puts more weight on keeping the rules than on helping a child deepen his relationship with God and with the parents. So it's all about putting up this perfect image. 
having perfect children, having a perfect home, but in order to have that, there needs to be a whole lot of rules and regulations at the expense of a relationship with the child. All of those things can lead to a child becoming discouraged, as Paul says here. Or one other scholar translates it as breaking their spirit. There's nothing worse than seeing a broken child. Some of the symptoms include sullenness. There's just no spark, zero joy in their lives. You know, you, you give them an, uh, an ice lolly, you give them a, 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 you know, some sort of candy, or you, you take them to the movies and there's just nothing there. There's no joy, no excitement. Secondly, they, they begin to struggle with an infer- inferiority complex. And when you feel inferior, you you miss out on so many opportunities because you have this mindset that's already spoken you out of it. Don't even bother signing up. You can't do that. Don't even bother trying to do that. You can't do that. Or thirdly, they become incredibly rebellious. I had this um, friend back in high school. It's probably one of the most talented sportsmen I have ever, ever played with. Uh, ridiculously talented. You know, you know those, those annoying guys and girls who just, you just know, you know, I, you know the first ed teacher introduces something new and you just know, okay, Gary's just going to be, you know, he's, just let him do it first because he'll show us how it's done. You know, and, but the, the problem with this friend of mine is that his home life was horrible. I don't know if his dad was, was distant um, or abusive or just simply absent, but how it manifested in his life was by being rebellious. I remember he, he would rock up late to practices or he just wouldn't come to practices. Uh, we had this uh, gigantic uh, game, this very important match, um, and he rocked up to that match hungover from the night before. And, and I used to get so incredibly angry with him because I was on the complete other end of the spectrum in terms of talent. I mean, I had to work so hard just to get into the team, never mind, you know, be the best player in the team. And he was just brimming full of all of this raw talent. But now in hindsight, after studying this passage, I can only imagine how different his life would have been if his dad was just an encourager not absent, not a provoker. If his dad had just come to watch him play one game, just to actually see how good his, his son was, it might have changed things. But he never did, never saw him. Then there's the opposite extreme, Tony Evans, a pastor tells a story of when uh, his son, uh, his son's football team made the finals. And so this was a massive deal. Uh, It was a big deal for his son. And he promised his son, I will be there. I'll watch the final. I'll watch you. And then as it happens, a, a big emergency arose. He never goes into detail in the article. He never goes into detail about what that emergency was. Uh, but it required him to leave Dallas and go to, to Houston. And he says in the article, he was caught between a rock and a hard place. And so he tells of how he, he jumped on the plane, flew to Houston to begin dealing with the emergency, then jumped back on the plane, flew back to Dallas to watch the second half of his son's game, and then jumped back on the plane and flew back to Houston to deal with the rest of the issue. Now, obviously, it must have been uh, you know, a, a critical thing, but we trust that his son was encouraged, at least by the effort that his father made to try and be there for him. Which then leads to the all-important question, and we'll finish off with this. So what does it mean then 
to be an encourager of our children as opposed to a discourager. Four points, four practical points, hopefully, and then, then I'll pray for us. Firstly, remember, parents, we are children before we are parents. We are children before we are um, parents, and I don't mean that in the biological sense. I mean, again, as Paul has said, in the context of chapter three, verse one, if you have been raised with Christ, if you have been born again, that means moms and dads, you have been adopted into God's family. You are his children. Jesus taught us to pray, our Father in heaven. We are always to relate to God as our Father. And so this means as parents, we, we humbly rely on him in the same way that our parents rely on us. We rely on God to, to lead us, to guide us, to protect us, to provide for us. And so as we are fathered by God, we then in turn parent our children. As this happens, we are changed. We are changed not just simply to be biological parents, but we now become spiritual parents. And listen to me, everyone. If that is true of us, if that is true that we are all fathered by God, if we are all his children, then that means we can become a spiritual parent to someone. Or maybe the more relevant term to use these days is a mentor. You can become a mentor to someone. Encourage them in the ways of God as you are continue to be fathered by him. So the first way we encourage our children is not to forget your childlike faith. Don't forget your childlike faith in your heavenly Father as you rely on him. Secondly, discipline affectionately. Discipline affectionately. Again, as parents, we take our cue or our authority, not from culture, but from our heavenly Father, who himself lovingly disciplines us. Have a look at this, Hebrews 12, verse six, he says, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Verse 10 says, for they disciplined us, that's talking about our earthly fathers or parents, for they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, God, disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. So the first thing we see is disciplining children is, is biblical. Again, going back to point one, children are to obey parents. That means as, as parents, we are to give them instructions and sometimes this means disciplining them. But again, we take our cue from our heavenly father, not from culture. His motive is out of love in how he disciplines us. His motive is love. That's a challenge. What is your motive in disciplining your children? Is it sheer anger? And then he has a goal. Out of his love for disciplining us, he has a goal in that discipline. And that is for our ultimate or even our eternal good. That we might become holy like him. William Farley says this. He says, discipline without affection can be tyrannical. So if you just simply lash out, you're a tyrant. Then he says this, the opposite extreme. Affection without discipline will spoil children. I don't know if I can use the word brat. You know, some, some children just, you know, have a free for all. But then he says this, but combine, combine these two virtues in the same man or parent 
and he is on the road to spiritual fatherhood or spiritual parenthood. That is what we're after. We wanna be their spiritual parents too, to, to grow them up in the ways of the Lord. So discipline is important in terms to, of creating boundaries, but those boundaries are, there, are not there to provoke them or to discourage our children, but rather to provide a safe, secure environment where they can thrive. Thirdly, encourage your children by walking the talk. The Apostle Paul, who other than Jesus, I think was one of the greatest preachers and teachers of God's word, he, says, he said this in 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. He said, be imitators of me, as I am of Christ. In other words, he says, what I teach, you will see in my life. I walk the talk. So two things we need to consider here as as parents or as mentors, and that is number one, fight for your own sanctification. Remember, it's the ongoing process of, of putting the old sinful, selfish you off and putting on the new you created after the image of Jesus. That will help us that will help us not become hypocrites. Secondly then, teach your children. Teach them, train them. Come alongside the person you're mentoring. Teach them in God's ways, teach them God's word. Teach them to get excited about God's word, his ways. And just remember, we're not gonna do this perfectly because we ourselves are in the process of putting off and putting on. And so we won't do it perfectly, but don't forget to be humble. Don't forget to apologize when we do do things wrong. Again, William Farley says this, your apologies to your children, your apologies will communicate to them that you are in deadly earnest about obedience, that you are not content to continue in sin, and that you are attempting to walk out what you teach. The last way, motivating them to be all that God has called them to be. Motivating your children to be all that God has called them to be, not you. Not because you missed out on becoming a professional football player, now you're gonna put that on your son, or you, know, you missed out on becoming this or that, now you're gonna put that on your, on your daughter. That will lead to discouragement, that will oppress them. You remember the, uh, the tennis star, uh, Andre Agassi? Uh, he's reported as saying that he hated tennis throughout his entire career. I mean, I read his autobiography, and, and this was largely attested to an overbearing and abusive father who made him hit thousands and thousands of tennis balls every single day from a very young age. Agassi recalls phoning his father after winning the 1992 Wimbledon title. And uh, you would expect this big congratulations on the other end of the line, or, well, well done, son, I'm, I'm proud of you. But Agassi says this was his response. You had no business losing the fourth set. Your son has just won the most prestigious tennis event in the world. And that's your response. That's abusive. We are ultimately designed by God for God. And when we are born again, we are set apart by God for God. The greatest thing we can do as parents and as mentors is disciple our children or the person you are discipling to, to find, to discern uh, God's giftings within your children, within that person, and then come alongside, help them develop those giftings for God's glory and for their joy, for their satisfaction, for their purpose in life. 
And you don't need millions of dollars to do that because you've got the creator of the universe who's calling them, who's invested in them, who will provide for them and care for them. Listen, this, this might sound overly simple, but I, I believe it's true. Broken families lead to broken societies and to an ever-increasing licentious culture. On the flip side, transformed families or transforming families lead to a transformed society and an ever-increasing God-glorifying culture. Because I believe the family unit, along with many, many sociologists, they believe that the family unit is the core building block to any society. Just by being obedient children, just by being a source of encouragement to your children, not only will your your family transform, not only will our faith family here transform, but we will make an impact on the society and culture on this island. So Sunrise, I, I think we can afford to dream big. I mean, we're, we're just a small faith family here, but we can dream big of impacting this island, impacting the world, just simply by lovingly caring and encouraging everyone who sits around our dinner table, by loving and encouraging everyone who's under our roof. The greatest thing you can do is point your children to Jesus because he is enough for their lives. He's enough for you as a parent. He's, he will transform your family and that will transform the society and the culture that we live in. Amen. You pray with me, we'll pray for our parents, pray for us as a faith family that we'll come alongside people and continue to point them to Jesus. Heavenly Father, thank you firstly that you are exactly that, you are our Father, you are our Abba Father. That no matter what stage of life we're in, whether we're single or young married without children or married with children or grandparents or single parents, no children, whatever our circumstances might be, you are the solid rock in our lives. You are our heavenly father. And you have promised that you will never leave us. You will never forsake us. We can always, always lean on you. And so I pray for our parents specifically right now that they would lean on you, father, they would cry out to you as their ever father to help them parent their children, to ultimately point, continue pointing their children to you, Jesus, as their Lord and Savior. Would you give us eyes to see them, to see them in their own little worlds? Would you give us eyes to see the giftings, the investment that you've placed within them? Would you help us help develop those giftings? Because we know that they will find ultimate joy and satisfaction when they are living according to how you have designed them, according to your purpose for them. Help us not to impose ourselves on them, but to lovingly, lovingly point them to you, that they might grow up knowing you as their steadfast father. Would you heal hurts? Would you heal abusive pains? 
that many of us have maybe suffered at the hands of fathers or other relatives. Again, open our eyes to see you, Father, as our all-comforting hope, grace, mercy, and love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.